morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. We're, we're launching a new series. It's like, wait a second, didn't we just launch a new series? Um, Pastor T is going uh, to be continuing to work our, uh, our way, together with Pastor T, we're going to continue to work our way through First Timothy. This morning, we're going to pick up Ephesians, which we're going to also work through sort of along the way. Um, and if you remember from First Timothy, where's, where's Timothy at? He's at Ephesus. So P- Paul's letter to Timothy is his letter to the church planter, right? Pastor T described it that way to us uh, a week or two ago. The letter to the Ephesians, what we call the book of Ephesians, is Paul's letter to the church planted. And so we're going to, by, uh, by God's grace and the, the leading of his Holy Spirit, we're going to seek to look at both angles. What's Paul saying to the church planter? What's Paul saying to the church planted? And uh, sort of look at them together going sort of back and forth over the next uh, a couple of months. So this morning we, uh, uh, we launch into to, to Ephesians, and we're going to find that these two letters are really, the, well, they're, they're, sa- they're different tracks on the same album. Does that make sense? might sound like, oh, Swanson's uh, saying a lot of things that Pastor T's saying. It's like, no, 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 no. We're both just saying what Paul's saying. We're going to seek to, like, just delve into what the Holy Spirit had for Ephesus, believing that God's got some things for us there as well. If you need a Bible, our ushers are our uh, Bibles down. Uh, just raise a hand. We got we got one brother back here that needs one. Um, if you don't own a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, please take this as our gift to you. Please take this as our gift to you. You got one now. Um, but if you just need one for the day, uh, don't want to pull it up on your phone. Uh, rather have the paper. There we go. Uh, we've got we've got a handful. All right. So let's dig in. So. Paul's writing to Ephesus, and I always find that it's helpful if I'm going to understand what's being said, what instructions are being given, to know a little bit of the story, to know a little bit of the context. Who are these people? Who is, what is Ephesus? Why is Paul writing there? Uh, what's the situation? So a little data to start us out, to build that foundation for our understanding. The city of Ephesus is located on what's now the, uh, the western coast of Turkey. It was a leading city of what was then called Asia Minor. Um, it had a, it was, uh, one of my teachers uh, put it this way. It was sort of the New York City of Asia. Does that make sense? If you think of the, the seven churches of Asia Minor that, that John writes to, Pergamum was sort of the Washington, D.C., maybe a little bit more similar to our context. Ephesus was the New York City. It was the city of Asia. Um, population of about 250,000. Um, compared, to, compared to like Jerusalem, Jerusalem was about 80,000 at this point. So it's big. Maybe not big by our standards. It's big by ancient standards. It, um, and it was home in being that large. It's home to more than 20 different pagan temples. The city was beautiful in its grandeur. It was technologically sophisticated. It was beautiful architecturally. It was culturally learned with an enormous theater that sat 25,000 people as well as a, a huge library. So the, the arts were uh, preeminent there. It was a major port city and a center of trade for that part of the world. Again, think Wall Street. But at the heart of the city's life and economy was the worship of Artemis, her Greek name, uh, also identified as Diana in Latin. Artemis, in its like Greek sort of heritage, was the goddess of wild animals, of hunting, of vegetation, of chastity, and of childbirth. 
But when the, the Greco-Roman cults reached Asia, they came into contact with those ancient, if you remember your Old Testament, those ancient sort of Hittites, those ancient Near Eastern pagan traditions that were far less staid, far less, um, uh, we, might, we might call it civilized, far more vulgar, perverse. So Artemis in Ephesus is combined with uh, the, uh, the ancient Hittite fertility mother goddess, Kibbola or Sibylle, which meant that uh, unlike in Greece where the, where the, uh, the, the worship was fairly um, conservative, here it's wild, full of perversion, full of degrading practices, full of sexual immorality and drunkenness. In Asia, there's no connection between religion and morality. Religion was a means of accessing the spiritual world to gain prosperity for one's self. Not a guiding principle to guide one in how to live. Does that, does that make sense? We, we deal with that spirit, don't we? So, Artemis, uh, uh, this version of Artemis ends up sort of eclipsing the Artemis of Greece. And Ephesus and its Artemisian, its temple to Artemis, uh, one of the seven wonders of the world, becomes, in essence, what we might call the Vatican of Artemis worship. Does that make sense? It's the Mecca of Artemis worship. Um, and so this becomes the, like the central piece around which all of life in Ephesus functions. Artemis was thought to be so powerful. She was the mother, uh, she was the, uh, the, um, uh, the queen of heaven. She was controller of the fates. She wore a necklace that had the, uh, the, um, the astrological signs on it, the constellations saying she controls the fates. So one of the things that happened was people began to deposit their money at the temple of Artemis because no one would dare mess with the temple of Artemis so it was safe there, which allowed the temple of Artemis to function as a, a savings and loan, a bank. Again, think Wall Street. So here you have, uh, you have like the temple of Artemis functioning as the bank, loans being given by, with interest. So Artemis was seen for, for good reason as being the, like, the, the central key to the success the city of Ephesus. Indeed, it was. It's crazy how false beliefs can, at least for a time, lead to success by worldly standards. That's, that's a little scary, isn't it? So Artemis, central to life, not just religiously, but politically, and economically, along with, uh, along with this, we see some evidence that, um, that Artemis was, uh, that the worship of Artemis included things like magic, not the card game, uh, but <laughs> magic, right? Uh, uh, to the point that when Paul's preaching, if you, uh, little, little homework, sorry, I'm a teacher, little homework for this week, write it down, because you won't remember, um, Write down, go, go back and read Acts 19 this week. Go read Acts 19 this week, because uh, 
the story here of what, what happens with Paul. Paul's going to be there for like two, two plus years, almost three years. The story's wild. Because he's going to preach the gospel. We'll come back to this. He's going to preach the gospel. And it's going to start a riot. And the people are going to come out and they're going to, like the Christians, the people convert. Believers are going to realize, they're going to become convicted that they've got all this magic stuff in their house and they bring it, they bring it out and destroy it. Which threatens the very like fabric of, of Ephesian society. So the church in Ephesus was under pressure. Not the formal Roman persecution, official persecution that, uh, that we're going to see in Ephesus maybe during John's time a little bit later, sort of referenced in the book of Revelation. But they're going to uh, face a significant uphill cultural battle. They're going to be seen, the church is going to be seen as a threat to the prosperity and way of life of significant members of the Ephesian community. And yet at the same time, the church is going to grow because it's a source of hope and life and peace. Where the Ephesian prosperity, was, like earthly prosperity, was utterly devoid of it. So Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul... He's identifying himself, right? An apostle of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul here is identifying himself. He's writing to this church that he pastored, that he was sort of the, founder, the founder of for two plus years. And while one of the things that sets Ephesus apart and Paul's ministry there in Acts 19 apart is that Paul, um, who had been going church to church, uh, uh, sorry, city to city, planting churches at a really fast clip, suddenly stops and takes on a, 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 I guess, a philosophy of ministry that is profoundly Jesus-like. He stops, he stays. How long was Jesus with his disciples? About three years. Paul's going to be there just short of three years. Many of Jesus' disciples were disciples of who first? Anyone remember? John the Baptist. Paul gets to Ephesus. He's got Timothy with him. Right? He's, called, like, he's called Timothy as his disciple, sort of outcast boy from, from a nearby village. And he runs into, it says the text is about 12 followers of John the Baptist. That's fascinating, right? Because we think of John as this sort of like backwater, sort of uh, uh, like weird dude out by the Jordan preaching and teaching. And here we are a thousand miles away in this big city of Ephesus and followers of John the Baptist. Plus there's something about John's movement. Oh, John's movement is maybe different than what we thought. But he finds these 12 disciples of John the Baptist and they become believers in Jesus. They receive the Holy Spirit and they spend two plus years, almost three, following It's maybe like awesome. And again, we're, we're maybe guessing here a little bit. When that riot breaks out, Paul wants to go in and face the riot. There's 20,000 20, people in the, in the theater all chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Paul's like, let me in. And the disciples are like, no, we got it. You go, Paul. We got this. Now, it's been about seven years since that scene, that moment. 
And Paul's writing, and he's having to reintroduce himself. That was mine. <laughs> he's having to reintroduce himself. Y'all, y'all feel that? Like, we... <laughs> We've been out of church for uh, we've been we've been doing church online a lot over the last couple of years with 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 COVID, and then we, by God's grace, had two kids <laughs> during that time, and uh, and and I I, don't, I feel like man, I, I got to introduce myself to to church. <laughs> so Paul's Paul here is, is writing. He hasn't been back for seven years. He's he's having to reintroduce himself to the Ephesian community, knowing that well, it's grown. And people come and go. Ephesus is this cosmopolitan city. And we don't know what happened to those 12 disciples. Did they follow Paul? I'm guessing they followed Paul's example and went city to city, planting churches, supporting churches, pastoring churches. Now Paul's having sort of like, hey, it's been a while. Let me reintroduce myself. Now, that's led some people to think, well, maybe this wasn't really written to, the, to Ephesus. Maybe it was sort of a circular letter. There's some, there's some debate there. Maybe this was really uh, a sort of a general letter to, uh, to a number of churches in Asia, and Ephesus' name just really got slapped on it. But I don't think so. I think the best evidence is that this is to the Ephesians. Um, and we're going we're gonna to try to make that case throughout because there's enough here that says, yeah, this is about Ephesus. Um, we, it's also helpful to keep in mind that Paul's like letter to the church really might be, at least from our perspective, more like letters to letter to the churches. That you may have multiple house churches functioning simultaneously, to connected but functioning independently in a fairly large city. You may also have a group of believers that have never actually left the synagogue. Does that, does that make sense? You got Jewish believers still functioning as, as members of the synagogue, and so. Um, so Paul, one of Paul's uh, aims here is going to be to bring unity to those groups. Is that, you with me? We'll get that, and we'll tuck that away because that's going to come up next week. So um, Paul has six main objectives in the letter. Um, the first one, the one that we're going to look at this week, is that he wants them to understand what God has done for them in Christ. Paul wants them and us, right, to understand what God has done for us in Christ. So week's going to feel maybe a lot like review, right? It's be maybe simple, and yet I hope we'll find it profound. He also is going to pray that uh, second objective is that Christ may dwell uh, uh, in our hearts. Three, that we would understand Christ's massive love for us. And four, more practically, that we would remain faithful to Paul's teaching, that we would not compromise, five, we would not compromise um, with the harmful moral standards of our unbelieving environment. And finally, six, that we would not, uh, well, that the Ephesians would not succumb to the discouragement or to discouragement or disunity due to Paul's imprisonment. There's going to be things we can take from that, even though we're not maybe in that, in that situation. So Paul is going to seek in chapters 1, 2, and 3 to build a theological foundation. What do we believe? And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, given those beliefs, given that truth, how do we live? How do we live out in our context? And I think we're going to find that the context of Ephesus is going to be like eerily familiar to our context. You with me? 
All right. So, uh, so um, let's pick up in, uh, let's jump into sort of the nitty gritty of chapter one here. Verse three, um, Paul is going to launch into, in, in verses um, three through 14, the, literally the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament, in the New Testament, longest sentence. Greek does not have run-on sentences. Y- y'all remember sentences from school? I'm a teacher. We do this all the time. Like, bro, you need a period. You need a capital letter. Like, stop with the commas, all right? You don't even know how to use a semicolon. What are you doing? Paul does not have that problem. There is not that expectation in Greek. The man is going to, he's going to talk. It's like eight sentences in your English Bible. But Paul, um, Paul launches into a very Jewish-style declaration of praise. It's, he starts with blessing or blessed. Um, we don't tend to use bless this way. God blesses us. We don't bless God. But no, no, no. God blesses us. And we bless him, praise him in return. So he says, blessed to be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here he's taking this like Jewish style prayer, uh, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, and rearranged it. Blessed to be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us uh, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Um, to open with praise. That before we get into any of the theology, any of the application, we're going to praise God. And whatever our circumstance, whatever's good, whatever's bad, whatever's hard, whatever's eat, like we're going to start with praise. But this isn't just, Paul's not just here um, uh, quoting some old hymn. He's not just uh, uh, sort of like arbitrarily throwing in uh, a word praise at the front end as sort of a formality like we do with like commencement speeches, right? Uh, thank you, president, uh, so-and-so, and the board, and, uh, you know, we, we, we throw in these these. Uh, arbitrary notes of thanks, Paul's going to open with a very specifically crafted hymn of praise and prayer of thanksgiving that's going to lay the foundation for everything else he's going to say. Make sense? So let's read it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us before him, sorry, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of, uh, the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan uh, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we uh, who were were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
In him, you also, uh, when you heard of the, uh, of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were, see, uh, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It's a mouthful. If you're like me, uh, reading this the first time, it was e it's easy to get sort of lost in all that's going on here. So we're going to try to pick out a few things, a few key principles for us to take with us this morning. Paul's laying his foundation, laying a foundation of praise. Uh, and his praise is centered around God's relationship with the Ephesian believers, God's relationship with us. And if we understand and trust our relationship with him and our subsequent calling, uh, we can then move out in faith to live in community and as a community in a Christ-like manner. Make sense? So Paul reminds uh, the Ephesians of their relationship and calls them to praise God with him prior to getting into the nitty-gritty of the particulars as he addresses their context. So the, this whole section, 3 to 14, centers around the, the main verb, chose. God chose us. God chose the believers in Ephesus. God chose the church. God chose us. Everything else that he says in this massive sentence is dependent on modifying that idea that God chose us. Hmm. That's simple. God chose us. Great. It's easy to sort of shrug off, right? And yet we have a like we have a deep desire to be chosen, don't we? Whether it's I don't know if I don't know if adults even allow kids to do this anymore. Like on the on the playground, you're picking your kickball team or whatever. I want you and then you and then you, and no one wants to be the last one chosen, right? I feel like I feel like teachers didn't let, even let us do that. They were too worried about our like uh, our our self-esteem, yeah, our self-esteem. Um, we want to be chosen. Maybe it's, maybe it's a job. Maybe it's to uh, give the commencement address. Maybe, ooh, what, we want to be chosen. We want to be asked out. Well, the person we're asking to say yes. We even, there's even like a whole like uh, uh, sort of um, line of, of uh, reality TV shows that deal with this idea of being chosen. Maybe one that's slightly less toxic. <laughs> um, uh, is, is Shark Tank. Y'all know Shark Tank? You know, you know Shark I feel like there's a cable channel that's all, that always has Shark Tank on. We don't have cable, but anytime we encounter cable, there's always like all day Shark Tank's on. Um, if you know the premise of the show, uh, there's four or five, maybe six millionaires or big-time business people, right? And they're sitting there, and they got their notebooks, and they spend this show hearing sales pitches from small-time entrepreneurs who've got this business idea. They've got this business off the ground, and they've spent probably a whole lot of time crafting a sales pitch to try to convince this high-flying millionaire, billionaire business person to buy from them a portion of their company to invest in their company so that they can take this like garage side hustle and turn it into a life-changing multi-million dollar business. You with me? And you see, some are chosen, some aren't. 
we come, maybe, by analogy, to God. How's our business doing? We're bleeding money, right? We got nothing. We, our business isn't even a good idea. Yeah, this, this, this is going to fail, right? You don't have the location. You don't have the product. You don't have the service. You don't have the call. You got. And Jesus looks at, looks at us and says, I want you. Oh, you. You don't have the idea. You don't have the business. You don't have the community. You don't have. I'm going to give it to you. And I'm going to show you how to run it. God's called his church, right? Again, set aside the idea of business. His community to be outposts of his kingdom. To spread, to uh, think about the Lord's Prayer, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's called us together to bring, by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, through obedience to his commands and following Jesus uh, uh, by faith and in his example, that we bring little tastes of heaven right here, right now. He's not handing us a plane ticket out of here, right? He says, here's, here's how to bring a little bit of heaven right here. You know, in those hard moments when the church gathers around and, and just holds you, oh, there's a little bit of heaven there. You know, when, when we're celebrating as a church, whether it's a wedding or a birth or someone's given their life to, to receive salvation, we know, oh man, in that joy, there's a little bit of heaven here. We get caught up in praise. Oh, there's a little bit of heaven here. When, when the needy find comfort and help, there's a little bit of heaven here. That's what God, so God has, God has chosen us for that purpose. Make sense? We don't bring it. And yet God has created us good that we can bear the responsibility of bringing together, not, in, not, not, not just individually, together. We can bring the reality of God's like, purpose and design for his world uh, to earth. So God chose us. It's way better than getting chosen by one of the sharks on Shark Tank, right? One, there's way more power and authority and back in us than any of those little businesses. And a far superior purpose than like selling cupcakes, right? <laughs> so first starts out with this idea of chosen. God chose us. He says, uh, he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Like, so here Artemis claims to control the fates. She claims that she controls everything. And look, She's, she's going to get less and less significant, maybe in part because of the preaching of the gospel. And Caesar is going is to try to take that place in the hearts of the Ephesians. Uh, there, uh, by the time of John, by the time of Revelation is written, there's two massive temples to Caesar Domitian uh, 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 that sort of take Artemis' place. But throughout, the church is going to say, no, 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 no. It's not Artemis. It's not Caesar that rules time and space and history. No, 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 no. It's Jesus. That's good news, saints, right? So he says, 
uh, and we'll see this over and over again. He chose us before the foundations of the world. He predestined us. He, on and on. Who controls, who controls time, space, history? God does. Not Artemis. Not Caesar. And uh, that we should be holy and blameless. That we're forgiven and that we're different. We're set apart because of what Jesus has done for us. In love, that's a huge modifier, in love. Let's come back to that in a second. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So he chose us to adopt us. Now, we're, I think, used to that word adoption, right? But it, it, it has this different significance in the ancient Near East. The ancient Near East, uh, they're, they're a, a collectivist people. We tend to be sort of individualist. And as I was thinking about this week, our concept of adoption, I think often our concept of adoption uh, is around this idea of, here's people in need, I want to help them. Right? It's often, that's often, there's maybe other motivations, but I think that's often one of them. But that's not what adoption, how adoption functioned in the ancient Near East. And I think it functions for us that way because of what God is doing in Christ in the church. So in the ancient Near East, often adoption was about securing an heir, an inheritor, to continue the family line. Does that make sense? Inheritance was passed through sons, through, and in particular, the firstborn son. Um, so if you didn't have a son, it was a problem. Your line would end. Inheritance would pass through the, uh, to, uh, to the daughters, through, um, through the dowry, and pass into their husband's families. Again, we, we may say, ooh, we don't like this. Okay, fine. No, no one's saying we have to do it. We're not saying we have to do it that way, but that's the way it functioned in their culture. So if you didn't have a son, you might, uh, you might uh, maybe you have a, a, a cousin or a, a, a sibling who's got three, four boys of their own. You would adopt one of, one of your nephews to become your son to continue your family line. Does that make sense? It's a really different sort of vibe to it. So God does this, um, and, and, and often like, about like me and caring for my inheritance and my future, future of my family. God turns this on its head. He says, what's the motivation? Love. And what's he gonna do? He's gonna adopt, not because he's lacking a son, not because he's lacking security for the inheritance, the whole world, all of creation belongs to, as what Colossians says, Jesus, firstborn of all creation, we, we might have some Trinitarian questions there, but like as chief inheritor of all creation, we're going to see at the end, enthroned in heaven as king over all, God's going to say, in love, you know what? I've got an inheritor, but I want more. My, the riches of my kingdom are so good and so wide and so awesome that I want to share it. So in love, I'm going to adopt you and you and you and you and you and all y'all I want in my family. That's good news, right? God loves us to choose us, adopt us to the praise of his glorious grace. But he's not, 
he's not done. He's, he's going to pile on metaphors, analogies. Um, again, maybe not so familiar to us, but familiar to the people of Ephesus. So let's, uh, let, let's, let's try to get our heads around it. Paul then uh, 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 shifts to, from, from chosen to, to adoption, to then redemption. It says this, verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of our trespasses or, or sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, sorry, all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Now, redemption is one of those words, one of those concepts uh, that we're well, I think familiar with if we've been in the church for a long time. And yet probably our sense of the word is kind of vague. It, we, it risks being Christian, right? Uh, and maybe if we use redemption outside of church, it's redeeming a gift card or a coupon or something like that. So what, does it mean? what did it mean to them? Why was this a powerful analogy or metaphor for the Ephesians? We said a minute ago that um, in ancient Near Eastern family structures, that, well, the, the inheritance passes through the son. And let's say, uh, let's say you're, uh, uh, it's a family of, uh, that has three sons. Well, the, the firstborn son would receive, at least typically, a double portion of the inheritance. So he gets 50%, his two brothers each get 25%. Sorry to do like fractions, I'm just giving someone anxiety, right? Um, uh, first one son gets half, the other two get a quarter. And you're like, well, that's not fair, right? It's, uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's not, but again, that's us speaking as individualists, they're collectivists. What, so like, you're like, wow, like, this is favoritism. Maybe. There's a very specific reason that they did this. They did this because now that firstborn son, yes, being given a double portion of the inheritance, now has the responsibility to be for his family the redeemer. This brother ends up in financial trouble. His oldest brother's to bail him out cousin or a nephew loses everything, sold a slave. Eldest redeems him. He buys him back. He buys back his, uh, his land, his, his property uh, to the best of his ability. He now bears the responsibility to redeem his family if they're in need. Does that make sense? So Paul says, <laughs> Ephesians, church, you have a redeemer. <laughs> you have a rescuer. You have an older brother who, unlike Cain, is his brother's keeper. Right? Again, this, this isn't just heaven. It's now. And it's not, 
And again, we, we live in a culture where we have to say, well, this isn't like you can have anything. It's not Santa Claus. But it's support. It's care. It's comfort. Protection. We are not in this alone. And look, to our culture, right, that where we are, alone was never the goal. You were never supposed to do this by yourself. You're never supposed to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? Not that you don't have responsibility, but we're meant to do this together, led by our King, our Father, our Redeemer brother, Jesus. He says, you have been redeemed. Now, not just redeemed by the wealth of our, old, of, of, our, of our Redeemer, but redeemed by the blood of our Redeemer loved us enough to give his life that we might be cleansed for our sin. And we had a debt we couldn't pay. And our Redeemer paid it on our behalf to free us from death, to free us from slavery, to free us from the guilt and the shame. Now he does this for a purpose, right? He says, this makes us set apart. This makes us holy. We might be called blameless because Jesus' blood has taken away our blame. But he says he does this, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time, that when all things, when all is said and done, when the, when the story comes, to, when this age of the story comes to a close, all things, in, uh, all, uh, all things are united in him, in heaven and on earth. We often have this idea that the goal of, of Christ's redeeming work is to take us from, he- from earth and send us off into heaven. But read John. Oh, man. I, I, I just didn't even realize how much like, co-signing there was between John and Paul here, right? It's not that we're going to be taken off up into heaven. No, no, no. It's that in, in, the, end, in the end, in all things, heaven's going to come down and we're going to be like, heaven's going to be right here with us redeeming and restoring, renewing, that, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and every tear will be wiped away. God wants to bring heaven to us, through us. So he's called us to be outposts and a community of chosen, adopted, redeemed people bringing the reality of heaven to earth. So having been chosen, having been adopted, Paul then points out that we're also heirs or inheritors. Inheritors of hope, inheritors of a future, inheritors of a purpose. So in uh, verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. Having been, and here's that word again, if that scares us, predestined. God's in control, not Artemis. God, Jesus is in control, not Caesar predestined according to the purpose, uh, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, praise God, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be, to, uh, might be to the praise of his glory, that our whole lives would sing, would, would shout, would declare praise to God, that we would be different, not just different, righteous, holy, 
so that God, so that when people looked at us, God would be praised. And in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So God has made us inheritors. Um, studies are showing that millennials, uh, it's a weird term, um, I'm one of them. Recently, I was called a geriatric millennial, um, which is both like super insulting and awesome. I kind of love it. Uh, millennials uh, were worse off financially than um, uh, any generation in America since the Great Depression. So it was the generation of the Great Depression, millennials. There's lots to do with that. I'm an economics professor. Who knows? They, yeah, read about it yourself. What's interesting is that in the last couple of years, millennials financially have started to recover. Anyone know why? Sort of, sort of unfortunate. Because they're inheriting the wealth of their parents. And grandparents. Unable to build wealth ourselves because of the uh, because we're saddled with student debt and and and, and rising in, uh, rising costs and uh, and low pay, um, now are well catching up because of the inheritance we've received from uh, from those who have gone before us. It's interesting, but saints, look, there's Paul here is talking about a much bigger, much better, much more significant eternally sort of inheritance. So he says, you've been adopted. And not just brought in. You're not a, you're not a foster kid. You're not a, an employee or a slave or a servant. No, 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 no. You're a son and daughter, an inheritor of God's kingdom. You've not just been redeemed for the moment from this one thing but you now are now inheritors of his kingdom, of his family. Our calling then is to bring glory to God with our whole lives. Our calling is to make God look good by living as a community, a community of love. And he says, um, uh, sorry, just step back for a second. It says in verse, um, in verse 13, he says, the promise of our inheritance is, um, is sealed. There's a, there's a sign of our inheritance. Um, think about, uh, do you remember Joseph? What did Joseph get from his father? Coats, full length or highly ornate or many colors. It's not just that, uh, it's not just, I think often we read that story that, uh, that Joseph got Jordans and his brothers got Skechers. Now, it's not, it's not quite it. Jo Joseph being the 11th son, but the first son of Rachel, is being declared publicly as the primary inheritor of the family. He's going to be the redeemer. And that ticks off his older brothers because that's not how it was done. Make sense? 
God has given us a mark that we're inheritors of his kingdom. And that marks the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? Well, let's, let's go back to that verse that we all, that, well, hopefully that we know, right? How do we define the Holy Spirit? What's the, what's the Spirit look like in our lives? What ought, it ought to look like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul and Galatians, right? I just, I, I remember like all the men's conferences in like the late 90s, early 2000s about being a tough guy Christian. And look, we know there's good things that happen there, but I'm, wait, I'm waiting for that men's conference that's about love, joy, and peace. Like let's, let's, let's do, guys, let, let's get together on that. Let's, let's make that happen. God sealed us. He sealed us with the Holy Spirit, which is both a promise of power and a responsibility to live up to. Does that make sense? Paul shifts focus. Then shifts focus in verse 15. He shifts to a prayer of thanks. He's praised. He's laid a theological foundation in his praise. And then he stops. Again, new sentence in the Greek. (laughs) For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to... uh, uh, may give you the the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What, uh, uh, what you are, what are the, sorry, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand uh, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body and the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul, seeking to reconnect with the Ephesian church or churches, he can't help but say, I'm thankful for you. Saints of ARC, I'm I am thankful for you. Thankful for your faithfulness. Thankful for your work here. Thankful for all the love and support and care that you've given, shown Stace and I as we've um, brought two kids into our family uh, in the last year and a half. I'm thankful for you and the love and care you've shown me with the passing of my father here in East Hollywood a few months ago. Church, I'm thankful for you. And church, we, we ought we ought to be thankful for the other churches that we see. We pray for them often. That's one of the things I love about, about our church. Right? Those other churches, those, those other outposts of the kingdom on other blocks, they're not rivals. 
rivals. Oh, they're, they're just, they've just, they've got our flank, right? They're just bringing the, the reality of the kingdom of heaven to that block and that neighborhood and that community and that city. Praise God. Be thankful. Paul then returns to what he's been building. Why? And, and, and in large part, why he's so thankful that the Ephesian church has persevered. He wants the Ephesians and us with them to understand the hope that we have as chosen, adopted, redeemed inheritors of God's kingdom. Christ died and rose from the dead for all who put their faith in him. That they would be cleansed of sin and freed from death. Now, don't forget what happens next. Christ is enthroned over all the world, over all of creation. He's been enthroned, seated next to the right right hand of God the Father, that he is now the rightful ruler of all that God has created. And not only that, but Christ's enemies, sin and death, Satan, his demons, and any and any power system person that follows them, they're going to be defeated. They are defeated, ultimately, yet we wait for their final defeat. So we don't come with just, we don't come to church and go out to our homes and our jobs and things just as people who've been invested in at 2% or 20%. We don't just have support in one part of life. We don't have just the support of someone who gives us a chance, right? We go out having been chosen by, adopted by, redeemed by, and inheritors of or with the king of the universe who rules over all things and has all power for good and life at his disposal, and we get to share in it. Not that it gives me a blank check. Not that it means that everything's going to go well with me. But that his church, not just us church, small c, but his church, big c, will prosper, will succeed, no matter what's going on in our world. Saints, the, the Ephesian church is going, to, is, going to, is going to undergo brutal persecution in these years after Paul writes Ephesians in 1 Timothy. Brutal persecution. But we're still here. We're here because they were faithful. We're here because they had a redeemer who rules. Look, saints, they suffered. And so might we. Big ways, small ways, whether it's cultural pressure or formal government-led persecution. God, in Jesus, in us, the church will prosper. 
Artemis, she's not queen of heaven. She doesn't rule. She's just a dumb carved rock. Caesar, he's not Lord. Today it's a pizza. Is that a dad joke? I'm, I'm just pressing full in, right? Or a salad, yeah, yeah, healthy options. Rome is not the bringer of the great peace over all the earth. No. All these things are rival claimants to the one true king who is Jesus. Paul doesn't have to call out Caesar or Artemis. He doesn't have to picket the Artemisian temple. He doesn't have to call for a violent overthrow, overthrow of Roman rule. No, no, no. God's kingdom come, his will is done. God's kingdom is conquered in the same way our hearts were conquered. In love, choosing the unlovable, giving grace to the undeserving. God's kingdom comes as we choose and welcome and call others to join in that rich inheritance that we've been promised. Bring praise to God's name by bringing flourishing life in the gospel to all who come in contact with the church, by living out a spirit-filled life in obedience to Christ, by bringing his kingdom come, by doing his will right here in Anacostia as it is in heaven. Wherever, whatever neighborhood or block you live on, our hope, and it's not in presidents or legislatures, legal benches or market forces. It's not in armies or weapons. It's not in profit. Our hope is not, self, is not in self-help or self-care. Our hope is not in any one of our various identities that we have been given or might adopt. Our hope is in Christ Jesus, the King, who in love chose us, adopted us, redeemed us, and made us inheritance, inheritors of his kingdom to the praise of his glory. So from there, saints, we're going we're to step into that. What is that? How does that play out in us as a community? That his kingdom would come his spirit is alive and, and, and working in us. Let's pray. Blessed are you, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who called us here together for this season to love you and worship you, to obey you, to be bringers of life and truth and grace and justice and peace, Anacostia and the various other neighborhoods in which we live. So God, give us grace by your spirit. Give us power by your spirit to do your work and to do your will in your way, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done right here in Anacostia as it is in heaven. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.